Hi, hmm? ah. oh. hey, you boys and girls out there in podcast land. You need great music for your productions. Sometimes you even need mainstream music. Well, there's one place where you can get both song freedom. They have tunes from every genre of music, even mainstream tunes, as well as oldies but goodies. And if you sign up for a free account at songfreedom.com slash radio, you'll unlock a free standard gold level license worth $30. That's songfreedom.com slash radio. We thank Song Freedom for their support. Welcome to Radio Film School Short Ends. These are mini documentary episodes about all things cinema to hold you over into the next episode of the main series of Filmmaker's Journey. If you want to know the origin of the term short ends, check the website. Be sure to stay after the credits for a special bonus segment. Enjoy. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hands down, one of the most complicated, confusing, and downright frustrating aspects of making films, particularly documentary films, is figuring out what's legal to use and what's not. The aspect of the law that covers the use of someone else's copyrighted works in your films is known as fair use. Now, last week I aired part one of our discussion around this topic when I played an extended excerpt of my interview with documentary filmmaker Salima Karoma. She shared how she was in the middle of crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's in her documentary about Asian rappers, called Bad Rap. And for the record, the title of the film is not at all suggesting that Asians are bad rappers. I believe it means that Asian rappers get a bad rap because they're Asian. Get it? Anyway, when she shot the film as part of her film school thesis, at the time, she didn't get any clearances for artwork, logos, etc. Nor did she get any signed releases. So her attorneys were helping her go back and cover all of her legal bases. What I learned in that interview was very eye-opening and frankly alarming. Why? Because I had just finished editing two documentary videos where I was using a bunch of copyrighted movie clips under the complete confidence they fell under fair use. One of those docs was the trailer for the Breaking the Glass docuseries we're currently producing. I was more concerned about this trailer because the visibility of it was going to be high. So I reached out to the series co-producer and one of the participants in the panel discussion, show regular Yolanda Cochran. She has a friend in the business who's an attorney. I had her show him the trailer and get his feedback as it related to the use of the clips in the trailer. Ron? Hey, Yolanda, how are you? Hey, how are you? Is it okay to record, or should I stop recording? You can record. So, sounds like you have bad news for me. I have really bad news for you. (laughs) Okay. You may be surprised at his answer. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School Short Ends. So, I called up Yolanda via Skype to work these issues out. Again, the primary concern we had was related to the use of movie and television clips in the trailer. Specifically, there is a part of the trailer where Talisha Rags, a television writer and producer, is commenting on what happens when women are more aggressive the way men are. How they are looked at as, you know, the B-word. Well, for B-roll over that section of the trailer, I used clips from The Devil Wears Prada, His Girl Friday, and Mad Men. I wanted to show clips from film and television female characters who asserted themselves in a way that was traditionally male. 
So, for instance, the Meryl Streep Miranda Priestly character from Devil Wears Prada was a perfect example. Needless to say, I wanted to make sure we were all on the up and up, and it wasn't looking too good based on Yolanda's discussion with her friend. So, obviously I'm not a legal expert, so I can't get into all the specifics of it, but he said fair use is not applicable to copywritten material. It's only typically will be applicable to trademarks. For instance, like if you're wearing clothing, like Yankees or those kind of things, like those kinds. But if you're using a clip, there's no fair use applicability to that clip. And he, you know, he says basically, you know, they could basically say that, you know, you you need to take it down. Which, you know, whatever. But he said from a more practical standpoint, given that you've got a bunch of film professionals in the content of your your video segment, it would be bad form to for us to not have known that you can't just have this material in there without license without properly licensing it. All right, so this is really confusing because all right, so I know Wikipedia isn't the end-all, be-all, but like it says, fair use is a legal doctrine that permits limited use of copyrighted material. Like my understanding that fair use is all about whether or not you can use copyrighted material without having to essentially formally license or pay for the copyright holder, and that. And what does it describe as this fair use? It says fair use is a, is a legal doctrine that permits limited use of copyrighted material without acquiring permission from the rights holder. It is similar to fair dealing doctrines used in some countries, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but what is that? What, what, are, what are the specifics of how is fair use defined? Like, I don't mean, yeah. I mean, like, what are the parameters of limited use? All right, so it says, you know, there are four factors. Um, the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of commercial nature, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount and, sustainab- and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole, and the effect on the use, the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. I mean, so my whole understanding of fair use is like the whole purpose of fair use is so that you could create a documentary for instance a commentary about let's say another person's movie or something or a docu- or you wanted to make a commentary about something and you needed to use somebody else's copyrighted material in order to comment say like a book or in this case it's a movie that's the kind of thing fair use would give you permission to use or so that kind of stuff so um so what, did this, that, what did this documentarian say to you that raised your concern then? Oh, what she specifically said was that because um, the documentary she made has uh, copyrighted material in it. And specifically, like, she has a shot of Times Square. So there's like a Mamma Mia poster and there is uh, MTV logo. So a lot of logos, for instance. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think she's specifically using like video clips. Her issue is more like logo usage or logos that are appearing in her documentary. And so uh, her attorney was saying when it comes to fair use, uh, even if something technically fits under fair use, if possible, 
get the clearances, basically better safe than sorry. And then so, like, on, for instance, on YouTube, there's a bunch of video essays. This came up in my call with there. A bunch of video essays that use, that are educational in, in content, that use video clips. So, like, if you wanted to do a video essay about David Fincher's work and you're doing clips from all his different movies, explain. But are you, are you able to ascertain whether or not those were properly licensed or not? Maybe they were. Technically, the answer is no, I can't. But right, here's an example. So there, yeah, one, go ahead. One, one of uh, Kirby Ferguson, who made um, a very uh, well-known uh, film series called Everything is a Remix, mm-hmm. has millions of views. I mean, he's spoken on TED, TED on the actual TED stage because of his popularity. I had him on my old show crossing the 180 and i even remember emailing him um and he said he did not get clearances for the clips he used and he has clips from tarantino movies from all kind of movies um again falling under the whole fair use doctrine every frame of painting is another very popular video essay essayist again his videos get like a million plus views he makes from patreon he's making about eight thousand dollars per video and I don't know for I don't know for sure, but I would bet a million dollars he did not contact all the companies he's you know he's using clips from to get licenses. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. now those could be situations where it's just because one of the things she said when I talked to her was that so many people don't know. Like she used to work for Time Magazine and she did videos for Time Magazine. She said even people there didn't always know. Like. They would do stuff for time, and then they would get calls from people saying to remove stuff or change stuff. So, obviously, there's a lot of confusion about it. But I think it would be worth, I don't know, getting a – I mean, I'll look to get a second opinion. Right. Only, only because it just seems odd that he would say it doesn't cover copyrighted work when my understanding that's specifically what it's all about, copyrighted work, not not just trademarks. He says there's a lot of confusion about what fair use is. There is. There absolutely is, without a doubt. The thing he said that doesn't seem to jive with what I've always understood, and I've done a lot of research on it over the years, and mm-hmm. is, is when he says it's not for the use of copyright material. And again, Wikipedia is at the end all be all, but right. there's a very long Wikipedia on fair use, and it specifically says it's about Using copyrighted material. Ron, sounds like you're going Donald Trump. I heard this on the internet. I don't know (laughs) what people are saying, but I heard this on the internet. (laughs) Hey, what's the deal? This is like the second week in a row on the podcast where I was compared to Donald Trump. I mean, what the hell, man? Okay, anyway, back to my conversation with J.D. and Yolanda. Beyond that, I have other tangential and anecdotal evidence to support that it's not just trademarks either, based on other filmmakers I've interviewed and whatnot. I think one of the things that I've you know, that, that uh, I've known about fair use is that fair use covers works of critique. So if you're doing some type of, you know, a critique of another person's copyrighted material. Hey, guys, sorry to interrupt, but I saw something that pertains to exactly this last night on Larry Wilmore. Oh, yeah. They saw the clip. Have you ever seen a clip on the Internet of the monkey that smells his butt and then falls over out of a tree? Oh, no, it's so I bad. Seen it. I haven't seen it. It's so hilarious. And it's like. But anyways, Larry used it last night a couple times, but he made a joke saying that my legal department tells me I have to make some type of comment about it. 
or else we could, you know, to not be sued or whatever. But you should check it out. It was from last night's show. Oh, check it out. Oh, if he has a formal show, he may, even though he said that, that could just be for a joke. And if it's a big yeah, show. Yeah, I, I I, it's a big kind of, yeah, no, I think he was like probably saying they yeah. probably told him make a joke. <laughs> right. right. You know, well, no. When you put this up, make a joke. It wasn't making a joke. It was more like make a comment, like make some type of comment commentary about it. on the thing. Yeah. 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 So he had to make a comment, but he goes, "I just love this clip, though." And he he kept rewinding it, showing it. Yeah. About five years ago, my wife was hit by a car in a crosswalk. Thankfully, she was able to walk away from it, but to this day, she's dealing with physical repercussions of that accident. Over the years, we've had quite a frustrating experience trying to get accurate diagnoses for ailments she's had as a result of that accident. I share this story because during that time, we've learned the valuable lesson of getting second opinions, especially when you know in your gut there's something not quite right with what the expert in front of you is saying. Now, I don't know Yolanda's friend, and given that she told me he has a degree from UC Berkeley, go Bears, and a Yale Law degree, I hesitate to question his input. But as I alluded to in the episode, everything I've ever read on the subject contradicts what he just told Yolanda. The Wikipedia entry about fair use says it's about copyrights. If you don't trust Wikipedia, fine. How about Stanford University? They have a section on their legal library's website devoted to fair use, and it's all about copyrights. I even emailed a friend of mine who works for a very prominent IP law firm in San Francisco, and he specifically told me that copyright fair use is covered by the U.S. Copyright Act, and he linked me to the language in U.S. Code Title 17, Chapter 1, with that little squiggly thing, number 107. I think that squiggly thing means paragraph. My lawyer friend said that there is a difference between trademark fair use and copyright fair use, but based on the evidence collected by my own corroborating attorney friend, I'm confident that this case is closed. Well, insofar in establishing that fair use does indeed cover copyright usage, but that still doesn't necessarily answer the question, does my use of these copyrighted works and my two respective videos count as fair use? And for an answer to that question, I turn to this person. I am thrilled to be here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to see the email I sent you this morning. Since you're and I watched the two films. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. That's Pat Ofterheide, a professor in the School of Communication at American University in Washington, D.C., and the founder of the Center for Media and Social Impact, an organization and research center that creates, studies, and showcases media for social impact. They focus on independent documentary and public media. She's also the co-author of Reclaiming Fair Use, How to Put Balance Back in Copyright. Her fellow author on that book was Peter Yassi, a Harvard Law alumnus and professor of law and intellectual property at American University's Washington College of Law. So they know their stuff. Now, she and Peter were the driving force behind the documentary filmmaker statement of best practices in fair use. Think of it as a sort of instruction manual on how to properly implement fair use as a documentary filmmaker. Now note, this is not a formal legal document, although it is based on copyright law. Here Pat gives the history about how this document was created. I think that the thing that I really want to have carried away with, carry away, carry away uh, from this conversation is that the documentary filmmaker's statement of best practices and fair use is truly uh, a statement grounded in peer judgment about what is 
what are the best practices. And so this is a document that was created by filmmakers. Uh, my colleague Peter Yassi and I had an instrumental role in convening those people to make it all happen. But ultimately, it was the judgment of the field that shaped that document. The way that it started, however, was that my colleague Peter Yassi, who's a legal scholar and the world's greatest expert on fair use, was holding a conference at his at the at the law school at my university, and wanted uh, some people in in the arts generally to participate in this conference, which was mostly lawyers. The conference was about how copyright inhibits creativity. Wow, oh, that sounds intriguing. Well, and so here's a bunch of lawyers, and I'm sitting in this conference, and they're all, and so's a woman who knows all about music, uh, a woman who's now at the Ford Foundation, Jenny Toomey. And she was at Future of Music Coalition. And we were listening very carefully to these lawyers talking about how when you have really long copyright that's really extensive, that covers everything, that default copyright, that, that it's very difficult for people to refer to existing culture in a, in a truly, um, in an uncensored way, because it means that they always have to get permission to actually refer to that stuff. We had never really thought about it that way. And we sort of looked at each other and I said to her, you know, I never hear the documentary filmmakers complaining about this problem, about how they're there, they feel constrained or censored. And she said, no, they're, my musicians, they're all worried about being ripped off in the digital environment. And we're both agreeing these people make excellent sense. Logically, in principle, this should be true. But we live in, in artistic communities where, where people are not talking about this. And so I talked to my colleague Peter afterwards and I said, uh, you know, this was a very interesting conference, but do you guys have any evidence <laughs> for, for the problem? Because you're talking, you're saying, well, stuff isn't getting made or people are being inhibited. Is it possible to get evidence? Because it's just, it, it's not there because people didn't do it. And he said, that's a really interesting problem. So we thought about it and we thought, why don't we try to figure out if it's possible to document it? Because of course those lawyers didn't have that ev evidence. They just had arguments. Right, right. And I said, you know, I know a lot of documentary filmmakers. Let's, let's go talk to them about how they how they work. Well, the result was just fascinating because time and again, I'll give you the short course on what they said. They said, well, I never have any problems with uh, clearance and copyright. You know, and you say, really? Because, you know, it, you're a documentary filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, well, I'm a professional, though. I know how to get, I know how to cope with these problems. That's that's what I that's why I'm a professional. And you're like, really, how do you cope with these problems? <laughs> and they're like, well, first of all, never, never approach uh, a topic that you don't have a, um, a budget to do the clearance on. And there are some things that it's just so the budget would have to be so huge, you wouldn't do it. And we're like, Oh, what wouldn't you do as an independent filmmaker? And they were like, Well, first of all, don't do anything that involves popular music. Don't 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 cover that area of the culture and don't don't do anything that involves m movies because you can't you can't pay for all those clips and um don't do anything that's about politics because then you you would probably have to get some tv clips and then you have the problems with the anchors and you know so don't do that stay away from humor because you know if you make fun of people you know somebody might not think it was parody and then and then you'd have to 
clear that. So they start making this really long list in which their choice is either to have a budget for clearances that is as large as the rest of the budget or to not make anything that involves popular music, popular uh, film, popular culture, anything about politics, anything about current affairs, (laughs) you know, and you're starting to see a pattern there. Right, right. So we get enough stories together. And people, of course, also have stories about how long it takes to do this work, how frustrating it is to go find all the clearances, how long, how, how much longer the film took to get made, which is all about money again. Let me interject here and remind you of Salima's story from last week how her attorney created this massively long list of every incident of logo, artwork, music, etc. in Salima's documentary that she advised that Salima get clearances on. Now, to be clear, Salima's attorney didn't say she legally had to get clearances. She said that fair use is something you have to prove. So getting clearances up front alleviates any chance of going to court. But technically, she could use these shots without clearances and take her chances. But going back to Pat's story... I found it interesting how so many filmmakers essentially were inhibiting themselves. Pat continues with her story. We were able to uh, then write up a report that documentary was distributed through all the major film organizations and also through all the major festivals that basically said filmmakers are not waiting for other people to censor them. They're just going ahead and doing it to themselves. Wow. Uh, they have decided to work in a smaller universe than they need to. And this actually disturbed people in the documentary community. It disturbed them enough that we were able to raise money from the Rockefeller and MacArthur Foundations. Rockefeller had funded that original research. And Rockefeller understood perfectly well what they were funding. They understood that they were funding free expression in the arts. But MacArthur Foundation came in on the second round, which was uh, Peter Yassi's idea. His idea was there really is not very many law. There are, there's, there's very little law on fair use because basically people don't sue in this area very much. So there isn't much law to go on. Hmm. And so you, and no, you're never going to get a test case that's, that will establish something for the, the normal functioning of the field because um, fair use actually exists. The problem is people don't know how to use it. So if people actually use it well, uh, a test case won't work because nobody in their right mind with a good lawyer will sue. So you're never going to get a test case about a good use of fair use. So what you, you're, you're probably going to need is to have the field itself decide what is a reasonable use of fair use. So to do that, how, how do you do that if people don't even know they have this right? Or they know they technically have the right, but they don't trust it. So what we did there uh, was, and this was something we pioneered and that worked so well that for 10 years we've been unable to get out of this business because so many other groups have come to us with the same request. But um, it at the time that we did it, it was pioneering, and most people did not believe it was going to work. And here I have to thank my network in the documentary film community, because many people came to meetings because I begged them to, not because they thought it would make a difference. But what we did was to have meetings that were all morning or all afternoon, a half-day meeting. We fed these people. And we would get together around 20 people who had at least two nationally distributed documentaries under their belts. 
we ex- we spent 45 minutes explaining to them what the law actually permits them to do and explaining to them that we already understood from their, from the previous research we've done where their obstacles to using this stuff were. And then we said to them, pretend that you don't have a broadcaster telling you no, you don't have an insurer telling you no, you don't have a lawyer telling you no, you could actually just do this. What do you think... And look what the law lets you do. What do you think is the right thing to do? Now, we knew that there were a bunch of situations that were incredibly common. Mm-hmm. First of all, people want to comment on a particular piece of media. Right. They want to comment on how Fox News is biased or whatever. They Second, they want to use some kind of media for illustrations. They want to say there are, um, there are a lot of um, uh, product placements in music videos. Okay then you have to show some product placements in music videos. Third, they, uh, there's elevator music in the elevator. There's a radio on at the cafe. Incidental stuff. Somebody has a poster up on the wall. Yeah. Uh, so all that stuff is incidental. And finally, people want to use historical footage. So what we said is, here's four common situations you're in. Let's talk about each of them. What's an, what's an, uh, we're going to give you a scenario. We're going to say, here's the filmmaker. Here's a story. What should the filmmaker do? And people would argue among themselves about what they thought was um, too much, not enough, acceptable, why they thought something was too much, not enough, acceptable. And that would give Peter and me material to go to the next group. We did these groups all over the country. Thank you, Rockefeller and MacArthur Foundation. We had those small deliberative sessions where people uh, said, I'm a veteran filmmaker. I license my material. I also use material that I don't think I should have to license. Where's the balance? What do I think is acceptable? And we got uh, enough material to let us create a draft document around those four scenarios, around those four situations. And once we got that draft document, we presented it to five independent uh, uh, legal scholars to review, to make sure that what the filmmakers were coming up with was also within the law, as, we, as, as, these, as these legal scholars and, and practicing lawyers understood it. Uh, and once they were done fine-tuning it, then we released it through all the five organizations, five, the five at the time, the five national organizations in the country representing documentary filmmakers took it to their boards of directors and every one of them approved it. And so they all became the joint authors. So this is a collective document that makes clear what is appropriate. The first reaction in the field was, well, thanks very much. That's not, that's not going to do me any good. I'm still just a filmmaker. I have, I have lawyers, I have broadcasters, and I, worst of all, I have insurers, and insurers aren't covering fair use. So we, um, we did have the good luck to have several filmmakers be making films at that moment that were completely full of fairly used material and that would be undistributable that, where it couldn't be licensed. Mm-hmm. And it was Byron Hurt's film, Hip Hop Beyond Beats and Rhymes. It was, um, uh, this film is not yet rated. And the third one was The Trials of Daryl Hunt. 
and they had they were for three different reasons they all had they were chock full of copy, copyrighted material that could not be licensed and that had been used under fair use completely legally and those three were able to use the document to uh, bolster the confidence of broadcasters and get every film on the air the the real breakthrough one though was Byron's Byron Hurts film hip hop because it was that film that was completely covered by insurance for fair use. And when one insurer covered that film for fair use and, and began boasting about it, we will offer you filmmakers uh, coverage for fair use. Every other insurer in the country suddenly started offering um, insurance for fairly used material if it was done within the terms of the documentary filmmaker statement. And that began the process, which is 10 years later is really interesting, which is that the default in the field has changed 180 degrees. Now, instead of assuming automatically that you have to clear everything, the, 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 audit, the default assumption is uh, I should make sure that I understand my fair use rights because uh, I'm, I may have to clear this or I may not. And when we did a study last year of documentary filmmakers, we discovered that the great majority of them had recently employed fair use and that basically none of them had had a problem with insurers or broadcasters or lawyers resisting their use of fair use. And that, that was astonishing to us to see the drama, the dramatic change in the field. Now, one of the areas of copyright usage that consistently comes up is music. So many filmmakers and video producers are confused about music and how to implement it in their videos and films legally. Now, naturally, if you want to be 100% safe, you can use music from a site like freemusicarchive.org and find music with Creative Commons licenses that allow for your particular use of that song. Or you can use a service like our sponsor, Song Freedom, that has more traditional sounding music as well as mainstream music. But I was surprised that learns some uses of music do indeed fall under fair use. Here's Pat again. Well, fair use is, is platform agnostic, and I have many, many friends who say, um, yeah, I understand fair use, but what about music? And I'm like, also covered by fair use. But I think you've read the code, you've read the statement very well, and I, I love the way that you used um, material under fair use in, in the clips that you sent me. Oh, thank you. She's talking about the clips from my Mix in America documentary, as well as the Breaking the Glass trailer. Links to both of those videos are on the show notes. Okay, back to Pat. Uh, and I think you're right that that filmmakers agreed in that statement that if you're using it as soundtrack, for instance, you're you're laying a uh, um, endless love down underneath <laughs> the, the uh, you know the the, pic, the 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 photo display for your for your wedding video, uh, th that is a, a licensable use, and you're using it for the purpose for which it was designed and you haven't you haven't repurposed it you haven't done anything differently with it you're using it for its original purpose so that means it doesn't fall under fair use i don't know if you ever saw however a video that was on youtube which used endless love under a very clever recut of uh, news footage of george bush and tony blair making it seem as if they were singing to each other um a song of endless love went uh, about the war in Iraq. 
So this is this is a political statement about two gentlemen who are both leaders of their country being in bed with each other around a geopolitical issue. And there is a case where endless love used at great length is a fair use, where it's a clear repurpose and using a very popular romantic song is exactly what you want, because using an obscure romantic song would would not have been able to make the connection for people. Yeah, yeah. Was that uh, particular video, like, was there ever challenged where they were sued or anything? Or No, no, no. And there's actually never been a, a lawsuit yeah. from any corporate uh, owner of material against any uh, YouTube poster. The only lawsuit that there's ever been has been by a YouTube poster who posted something under fair use and was told by um, Paramount to take it down because it was a, a Prince song. You employed her fair use rights to have it put back up. Paramount again came back and said, take it down. And she sued them for, for uh, violating her rights and violating the terms of the DMCA. And it looks like she's winning. Wow. Uh, she had posted a Prince video or? She Prince posted, song. there was a Prince song playing in the background when her child was, uh, uh, her toddler was dancing to that song in the kitchen. You mentioned transformative, and I think that's, I, my understanding, that's a key aspect of fair use. Could you explain what that means just for like people listening? Because I'm sure other filmmakers have seen that and as that being one of the parameters for establishing fair use, that the work is transformative in some way. What exactly does that mean? So let me say that the statement of uh, best practices and fair use uh, is organized around the actual situations where you'd employ it. So it has four common situations. Um, the, the core logic of fair use as it's interpreted by the courts since 1990 informs every one of those situations. And the core logic boiled down to something very simple, uh, which is completely reliable because this is, this is the way, this is the way judges are interpreting it these days is, is, uh, two questions. There are actually four factors mentioned in the law, but those four factors distill themselves into two basic, simple questions. Are you repurposing it? The, the judicial word, the, the legal word that people use is transformative. Is this transformative in some way? Is it, is it different from the purpose for which it was originally on the market? Are you downloading the Beyonce song because you really want to hear the Beyonce song? Or are you clipping out pieces of lemonade to show people something about African traditions incorporated into modern uh, music or something? In the latter case, what you're doing is using somebody else's current culture to make your own point. You are making new culture with it. The second question is, mm -hmm. is falls upon the first. If it's transformative, then are you using the appropriate amount for that transformative purpose? Sometimes that uh, uh, appropriate amount could be 100%. Sometimes it could be 1%. The question is not like, what's a, what's a rule for how much you can use? How much you can use is related to what you're doing with it. This has been quite an education, even for myself. I hope you found this information useful and encouraging. If you haven't already done so, I urge you to read the Statement of Best Practices. There's a link to it in the show notes and blog post for this episode. You can also find it and other best practices documents like best practices for fair use on online video, best practices for visual arts, best practices for poetry. They even have best practices for fair use of dance related materials. 
All of those and more can be found at cmsimpact.org. After the credits, there's a bonus segment where Pat gives advice on how to best use the best practices document. So stick around for that. Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. This episode was written and produced by me. Chris Huzlich is our co-producer. I want to give a special thanks to Salima Karoma for sharing her story in last week's episode. You can learn more about her film at badrapfilm.com. And of course, many, many thanks to Pat for sharing the background about her work. Radio Film School is a proud member of the Podcastica Network, a veritable any label of pop culture podcasts. Find ours and other great podcasts at podcastica.com. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes. And by the way, every week I say links to tracks are in the show notes. I do that because the Creative Commons licenses for the songs require that you include them. If you use them in a video, be sure to include those credits. And if you use them in your podcast, do the same. I gotta say, there are times when I hear on other podcasts songs that I recognize from Free Music Archive, and I never see credit either in the show or on the show's website. So make sure you give proper credit. If it was your work, wouldn't you want the same treatment? And speaking of music, I want to thank our sponsor, Song Freedom. They're your best source to license music from mainstream artists like The Lumineers, American Authors, One Republic, Kobe Calais, or classic tunes from the likes of Frank Sinatra, The Temptations, Bob Dylan, and more. Go to songfreedom.com radio and sign up for a new account, and you'll get a free standard gold-level license worth $30. That's songfreedom.com slash radio. Another great way you can support the show is by becoming a Daredreamer FM premium member. For a monthly price, equal to about the same as a matinee movie ticket in a small Midwest town, you not only support the show, but you get access to ebooks, templates, bonus episodes, discounts, and other products and services, and other resources to help you grow in your craft and career. For instance, Premium members get free access to my archived backlog of Crossing the 180 episodes. That was my old filmmakers podcast, where I had one-on-one interviews with filmmakers where I go deep and wide into their lives and their craft. I've grouped them in categories like Vimeo superstars, cinematographers, wedding filmmakers, and even Docs That Rock, a collection of my favorite interviews with documentary filmmakers like Kirby Ferguson, Sean Dunn, the makers of Any Game the Movie, and more. As a premium member, you get access to all of those interviews as I post them online. Go to daredreamer.fm join to learn more. If you're not ready to make a monthly financial commitment, then consider leaving a rating and review in iTunes. Heck, even if you do make a financial commitment, it would be great if you left a rating and review in iTunes. Even if you don't normally use iTunes, it would be a huge help if you went in and gave Radio Film School a rating and review. A four or five star is fantastic, but... Do whatever you think is fair based on what you get from this podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DareDreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. If you like this episode, share it on Twitter and email it to a friend. I'm sure you know somebody who needs a refresher on fair use. Don't forget to tune in again this Thursday for our next installment of Breaking the Glass. In the meantime, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or if you cleared all the copyrights. So, uh, a person's a documentary filmmaker, how should they go about, uh, 
using the best practices, the best practices document in terms of applying it to their own work? The hardest thing for me is getting people to actually read the document, which is short and written for people who are not lawyers. It's in lots and lots of places, but it's on the center sites, uh, cmsimpact.org slash documentary. But you, you know, you could also just Google it and have it come up in lots and lots of places. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I think it's very easy to figure out what you want to do. I do have friends call me and say, do you think this is good? And I can't tell them whether it's fair use or not. I'm not their lawyer. Right. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> and I say, you know what? You should read the code. You should read the statement. And they're like, I did read the statement. I just want to know if I'm right. <laughs> and, right. and I say, look, we can read the, we can read the situation that, that applies to yours together if that's what you'd like. You know, but I can't tell you. So what they're asking me is, can I have 100% security that I'm right? Now, what I find fascinating about this is that people are not asking that about the entire rest of their lives. Like, they do not say, I will not walk out this door this morning because I could get run over. It could happen. But, you know, it's probably not going to happen. And it's probably not going to happen partly because they can understand the level of risk involved in crossing with the light versus not crossing with the light. What the code of best practices, this code of best practices does, is to lower the risk of a lawsuit or any resistance, really, um, to a very low level. So nobody, when you use your rights, nobody can ever tell you that bad things will not happen. But people do not stop criticizing public officials or corporate leaders because libel law exists. You know, they understand what the range of acceptability is. That's why they're not really worried, even though they could be sued for libel. The code of best practices is designed specifically in the absence of, because it was not common 10 years ago to use fair use, to establish what should be considered common, what should be considered the best practices. And so when you read that document, what you're reading is something that says, if you do this, you are in the center of, you're running with the center of the pack. You're running with what everybody in your field thinks is okay and which now everybody in the field is actually doing. So that should be a source of great comfort to people. And, and I think people do need to get over that sense of, I need to have absolute security. If they want to use their rights, if they want to license everything, they, they do have absolute security. And, that, and that's fine. If they have all the money in the world and then they can have access to everything, why wouldn't they do it the expensive way? But sometimes, even then, you can't, you can't say what you want to if somebody doesn't approve of what you say. So uh, I still have people who want absolute security. I have people who would just rather be told than read. And I do find that there are lawyers who were went to law school before, if they went to law school before 1990, they probably discovered none of this news. Fair, fair use was, was uh, interpretation of fair use really changed very much after 1990. And they probably don't even know that law because they went to school before that. So um, in their zeal to keep people safe, they may be actually limiting their options. And sometimes you have to take that statement of best practices to your lawyer. I guess, and that's my third point, is that 
it's really important to not leave this decision to a lawyer because this isn't a legal decision. It's a free expression decision. What material you should draw from in the culture to make your point. So what you need to do to go to go to, you're going to need a lawyer's letter to get insurance, to get your movie out in the world. But a lawyer's letter is a lot easier to get than it used to be because now there's a, now there's a statement of best practices that the lawyer can refer to. When you go to the lawyer, what the lawyer wants to know is what is your rationale? Why is this a transformative use? Why is it not just using it for its original purpose? Why did you use the amount that you used? Those are the questions that you need to answer. And that's where the, the statement of best practices really gives you language. It lets you understand what's a real argument and what's not. Like people often give silly arguments for, for this. They say, well, the reason why this is fair use is uh, I got it on the internet. Well, the internet is full of copyrighted material. <laughs> right. say, I, yeah, they say, I, I, it's fair use because um, I'm, not, I, I'm not charging for this. I, I'm going to up- upload it on, on YouTube. Well, the fact that you're not charging for it really doesn't, doesn't really make any real difference. That's not where the power of explaining fair use is. So you really want to understand what the real arguments for fair use are. And that's, that's where the documentary filmmaker statement has been, you know, the field's gift to the future. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hmm? Ah! Oh. Podcast to go.